It is my pleasure to bring to you an exclusive conversation with Paul Tudor Jones, the CIO of Tudor Investment Corporation. Paul is also the co-founder and chairman of Just Capital, and he's the co-founder and a board member of the Robin Hood Foundation. Paul, it is such a pleasure to have you join me today. Uh, it's great to be with you, Julia. You're the nicest person on Wall Street. Well, I appreciate that, and our viewers are obviously grateful uh, to hear from you. So let's kind of start big picture here. Obviously, 2020 has been a year like we've never seen uh, from the global pandemic, the sell-off in March, the historic fiscal and monetary uh, responses that we saw, the election, now a runoff in the state of Georgia, um, markets hitting all-time highs or new highs. And of course, the vaccine news, the light at the end of the tunnel. So kind of framing up all of that, I know it's a lot to digest. What are your views of the market and also the broader economy? Well, I think the, the stock market's on, it's on a combination of fiscal monetary uh, pulse that we've never seen before in history, nothing like this. And of course, that's why you've got more companies with a PE over 100 than at any point, any other time in history. I think we're something like 50% more than we had in the top of the 2000 NASDAQ bubble. But there's, again, if you just compare and contrast, in, in 2000, we had real rates of about 250 basis points. We had nominal rates near 6%. Uh, and yet you still were able to achieve these lofty valuations for a variety of companies. Fast forward to where we are now, you've got real rates that are negative 200 basis points, nominal rates zero. And again, you can see why you've got Tesla at 900 times earnings because of the fact there's really no real good alternative um, for your cash. And so what we're seeing is what you see normally in many post-election years, a redeployment of cash back into risky assets after the fears that are associated with presidential elections and change in parties and the uncertainty and then knowing after they go away, irrespective a lot of times of even what the fundamentals are, risk capital comes back in the markets and that's kind of what we're seeing now. And I, I assume that trend is going to continue. I'm hearing you on that and the surge that we've seen in risk assets, certainly. I, I know you more as a macro trader, not necessarily an investor. You take the, you look at things from a trader's perspective. Are there any events on your radar, anything that could really change things or drive things in 2021? Well, there's some things that I think are immutable, and then there's some things that are going to be very binary. Uh, it's funny, I'm actually speaking from Georgia right now. so. I know this in Georgia. I think uh, anyone that thinks that this election is forecastable is just wrong. So I think the Senate is a 50-50 toss-up. You've got 5 million voters, I believe, in Georgia that voted. That number is going to probably drop to 3 million. Or it's gonna, it should drop significantly from the general election. That's what runoffs typically do. It's going to be about who mobilizes their base. And you've got, a, you've got a, this brand new phenomena of mail-in voting, which clearly favors uh, the Democratic Party. It takes, you know, 10 minutes to go ahead and, and fill out a, a ballot and mail it in, whereas most Republicans go to the polls and what's that? Two hours. So 
even though I think you would look at the numbers, you would think the Republicans have an advantage in this. There's just a lot of unknown events around this uh, this runoff. And so I think it's a coin toss. And, and yes, the outcome of that will have a lot of binary consequences because we're back to the it's and, it, and it's going to be it's, it's going to be all or nothing. You're going to have two blue senators. You're going to have two red senators and that they'll have significant, significant consequences for for some assets. So, yes, that part, I think, is is uh, indeterminate. But then I think there are other things that aren't indeterminate. And that's we're going to have a vaccine. The vaccine's going to bring us back. We're going to have an incredible growth rebound. I have four kids in their 20s. Uh, and it's like they're it's like a horse at the beginning of a race. They're so ready to get to see their friends, to get to restaurants, to vacate. Just they're just ready to get out and go crazy, like I think everyone else in the world. And yeah, I assume you're going to have a second quarter explosion, uh, certainly at the retail level, at every level, and you're going to have this just massive boom. And, and the consequences of that I think are pretty clear for fixed income. Um, fixed income will probably go down during that. Commodities will probably go up. And I think those are the two things that um, seem to me to be not influenced by what happens here in Georgia in January. Maybe there'll be an accelerant if you had uh, a blue wave as opposed to a red wave. But I, again, I think we're, we're, we pretty much charted the course to some type of absolute supersonic boom come second third of Q2 and Q3 next year. Irrespective of how Georgia goes, it sounds like. Yeah, irrespective. I mean, I think, again, if, if the Democrats won, you're going to have they're gonna they're gonna try another infrastructure bill, so you'd probably accelerate that growth path a bit. Uh, if they don't win, I, I think the vaccine by itself will uh, again unleash so much pent up demand that that you're gonna really see uh, a lot of growth in the second third quarters, and you're gonna see commodity prices probably rally, see inflation come back. There, there, there'll be a whole suite of things that I, again I think. Um, are pretty much baked in the cake. Can we talk about inflation for a sec? I, I know you're, you wrote this letter back in May, and I will preface it. I know you're not a flag bearer for Bitcoin by any means, but you did have a fascinating thesis. would love to kind of get an update on that, especially at current levels, and how you're thinking about the cryptocurrency in the context of your portfolio. Again, I'm not an expert on Bitcoin by any stretch. It's just with the market cap of 500 billion, it's it's the wrong market cap in a world where you've got 90 trillion dollars worth of uh, equity market cap um, and God knows how many trillions of fiat currency, et cetera. So it's the wrong market cap, for instance, relative to gold, which is eight or nine trillion. The th Bitcoin reminds me so much of the internet stocks of 1999 because the internet was in its infancy. No one knew how to value it because of the world of possibility that lay ahead. 
What you can be certain of is that probably 20 years from now, uh, our kids and grandkids, whatever, all of us will be using some type of digital currency. Digital currency will be um, will be used by every sovereign. They may have their own digital currency, whatever. They'll be very, very, very commonplace at that point in time. Cash may be gone. Uh, and so in that world, where does Bitcoin fit in, um, as well as some of the other uh, cryptocurrencies? Where does uh, Ethereum or Tether? I kind of, I, I don't know. I'm not smart enough to figure that out. I think um, that Bitcoin, if I, if I really had to kind of guess what the future is going to be, it's going to be a, a lot like the metals complex where you have precious crypto, that might be Bitcoin. It's the first crypto, first mover in the world that's so compressed, it has that historical integrity within digital currencies that it will always have. So that might, and again, because of its finite supply, that might be the precious Crypto. Then you're going to have transactional cryptocurrencies along with the sovereigns, and they may be more like the industri industrial metals. So where you have gold as a precious metal, then you've got copper and platinum and palladium, et cetera, that are industrial, lead, aluminum, industrial metals. You may have precious crypto and you may have industrial crypto. Um, so what I do know is that it's no way possible today to know what the next 10 or 20 years are going to be like. And I know that if I was, if I had to again, take a position on it, I'm going to, I'm going to take the brand name, which is Bitcoin. I'm going to assume that it's the wrong price for the possibilities that it has. Uh, and I'm going to assume that the path forward from here is North, and again, we had no idea in '99 of how to how to how the internet was going to sort out. Uh, and there were some companies that obviously, if you owned in '99, despite the crash that came after that, did just incredibly well and ended up becoming dominant players in the world. That's what's going to. My guess is that's what we're going to sort through. That kind of crazy competition, winners and losers, etc. In the digital world, you're going to see for sure you're going to see sovereigns fight back against private cryptocurrencies along the way. The same way uh, 110 years ago, 100 years ago, uh, it's funny, they had gold is, the, is really the reserve currency of the world at that point in time. We were actually on the gold uh, standard because of its neutrality. And then, of course, we came off. They banned it, um, but it had appeal. It had a lure because it was the one thing that was constant when fiat currency is, as we've seen, my Lord, when you think about the geopolitical shape up in the shake up in the past 20 years, it's hard to understand what the future of a currency, any particular currency is going to be. So, uh, again, I think crypto is going to have a crazy rocket ship ride up and down along the way. But my guess is 
is that something like or Bitcoin in particular will be substantially higher 20 years from now than where it is right now. And who knows what role it has in the monetary system? Yeah, it's a fascinating thesis you just uh, laid out there. I, I do want to shift topics and I want to talk about wealth inequality in this country and capitalism and, of course, stakeholder capitalism, something I know that you care very deeply about. So kind of just stepping back again and looking big picture, um, we have certainly seen, uh, you know, markets just rip and we wonder, you know, what does that do and how does that exacerbate the wealth inequality in this country? And what do you think needs to be done to, to flatten the curve, if you will, of growing inequality? Well, we've obviously got this huge disconnect between Main Street and Wall Street. Uh, and there's so many data points along us. I mean, we, we've since July, I think we have 8 million more people in poverty than we had just in the last six months, despite the recovery that we've had. Um, those that are the most vulnerable have suffered the most. And until we get the vaccine, we'll probably continue uh, along that path. So listen, the, 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 the private economy is 20 trillion. And then the government's four and a half trillion. And then public philanthropy is probably 350, 400 billion. So private philanthropy, I mean, excuse me. So the, the corporate sector, the private sectors, 40 times the size of, of philanthropy. And it's uh, four and a half times the size of US government. So if we're gonna have true social change, it has to start in the private sector. That's where you're going, I think, to actually begin to deal with wealth inequality. Of course, at Just Capital, we poll every year and ask the Americans, what's the most important thing to corporate justice towards making a company good? And the answer comes back year after year after year. Number one thing is, do you pay a fair and living wage? Do you pay someone a wage that allows them with a partner to raise a child and not struggle, but 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 thrive. Not strive, but thrive. So I think we've labored under this, I think it's a false God and a false belief that we have to pay low wages in order for companies to survive and to prosper. I think actually if you raise the wage level uh, across all workers, it's quite possible that the whole pie gets bigger and that we have the same level of profitability for companies, but we have a much stronger and more productive uh, economy than what we have now. So we started this initiative um, called the Financial Wellness Audit, which we're encouraging companies to do. And here's a statistic that I don't think everyone really knows, which is of the 20 million workers for the 1,000 largest companies in the United States, 10 million of those do not make an income with their partner working part-time to be able to support a living wage for a family of three. And that just, again, I don't think that's really what the American dream's about. So one thing we're encouraging companies to do is do a financial wellness audit, find out how many of your employees are making below a living wage and then when it comes time every year to allocate the revenues, how much of corporate revenues should go towards dealing with 
employees that you have making less than a living wage versus how much should be allocated to shareholders. And that's a really, I think, important moral question that every board should deal with, that every shareholder should deal with, which is if I'm not paying someone a living wage, and certainly if I'm not paying them a poverty wage, which would be a another it'd be a subset of that 10 million number, probably 3 million number, probably 3 million to 20, then who is paying for that? Well, who's paying for it, Julie, is you and I, taxpayers. Companies are actually using taxpayer subsidies to be able to generate their own profitability. And again, there's there's a there's a large question as to whether that's either good economic policy and whether that's really morally correct. So I think the first most important thing is for everyone to know how many of your employees don't make a living wage and then what's your responsibility to them along those lines. I think it's a great question for every board, every every person in senior management. Uh, is it aren't our workers who are actually allowing us to provide these products and services? Aren't they the most important lifeblood? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Paul, I'm a millennial and you were mentioning um, you're a father of millennial age children as well. And, you know, our views, uh, it, broadly speaking, as a generation, I'm sure you've seen the polls on the views of, of capitalism. And I, I do want to kind of ask you about the consequences. And the reason I wanted to have this conversation, it, it goes back to a TED talk you gave five years ago. And if you, you don't mind, I'm just going to quote you really quickly. You said, quote, now here's a macro forecast that's easy to make and that that's that the gap between the wealthiest and the poorest, it will get closed. History always does it. It typically happens in one of three ways, either through revolution, higher taxes, or wars. None of those are on my bucket list. What is your macro forecast for that today? And are, are we headed in the right direction? Well, well, this election obviously was gonna, it looked like we were at, at one point along the way for a revolution. Who knows what's happening with the election? Um, and certainly the, the stuff that we saw on the streets this summer was unlike anything that we've seen in, in since the late 60s. And then, of course, if you look at the Biden tax plan, which for all we know, come January 6th, may ultimately get enacted. Um, and the Biden tax plan is probably takes an absolute dead eye bullseye on the one percent. Uh, and does a great job of redistributing that to the rest of Main Street. So I don't know what the economic consequences are. I know what the distributed properties of it are. Uh, so we could be along that path of high, high taxes. We won't know until January. And then as far as wars go, again, these are crazy times where politicians seem to be jumpy, uh, where things seem to be so discombobulated that um, who knows what the future brings. Um, and again, a war can be a consequence of a war can be a consequence of a variety of things. It's possible a war could be a consequence because there's so much uh, divisiveness at home is the easiest way for whoever the politician charge is to get people to look the other direction. So I still think, Again, that gap's going to be closed. It's probably going to be one of those three avenues. Which one 
I can't pick. If I had to put my money on one, well, look, we're 50-50 on higher taxes. So uh, that that could literally be, well, we'll know more in January. Mm-hmm. Can we kind of double click on that just a little bit? Uh, I just kind of philosophically, how do you think about um, the deficit and higher taxes? Deficit? Who, who, who ever talks about that anymore? I mean, that's, it's, it's funny. Um, I haven't heard the word deficit. The only time I uh, hear the word deficits when I talk to all my macro brethren who simply will sit there and say, uh, it's just a matter of time before we pay the piper for the egregious debt levels that we built up nationally as well as internationally. So far, though, it seems like the trees can go to the sky, that there is no limit. Um, Certainly, debt to GDP globally continues to make new highs year after year after year. And now we've given up even trying, I think, to have any semblance of fiscal responsibility in terms of tackling it. Um, So, at some point, I guess will the markets will find there'll be some weak point, there'll be some grease of the future that creates enough systemic shock to where governments will have to deal with austerity budgets. I don't know when that's going to be. Um, we've been on this path literally for three decades, and it continues to do more than I thought was even remotely possible in terms of people's tolerance for uh, fiscal impropriety. Paul Tudor Jones, the founder and CIO of Tudor Investment Corporation, of course, also the co-founder of Just Capital and co-founder of the Robin Hood Foundation. I thank you so much for such a fascinating conversation and for being so generous with your time. Julia, you're, you're very kind, very sweet. I hope you have a blessed And all your listeners have a blessed holiday season.